Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are watching me from around the world. Thank you for joining me for part two of this teaching series that I'm doing right now. I am Krista Bontrager. I am a Christian theologian and public apologist, and this is the channel where I offer teaching about the Bible and theological commentary on social issues. As the year comes to an end, I want to say thank you to every person who has partnered with me financially in 2023. This ministry is possible because of you. I am able to be deployed into full-time ministry, researching, putting out this content week after week because of people like you. And you can find out more information about the ministry or how to support me by visiting the Center for Biblical Unity website, clicking on the donate button at the top of the page, and you can find out more about how to come stand with me financially to keep me employed in this ministry full time. Today, I'm going to be presenting part of a short series that I'm doing, focusing on the history of the state of Israel. And really what I'm trying to do is put the current conflict with Hamas into some kind of historical context. My goal in all of this is to work toward helping people have more meaningful dialogue about these issues and help them understand the issues through the lens of the Christian worldview. In part one, I provided some commentary on the history of the region of Palestine and the origin of the state of Israel. I do want to strongly encourage you to listen to that discussion first especially my opening monologue before tackling this episode, which is part two of that conversation. In this installment, we will pick up the story at the end of the war in the late 1940s and go up through the early 1990s. Now, once again, here is our tour guide and Jewish historian, Dr. Henry Abramson. For Israelis and Palestinians, the original sin was certainly the period that Palestinians call the Nakba and Israelis call the War of Independence. The Nakba, or catastrophe, refers to the forced displacement of a large number, something like 700,000 plus refugees, Arab refugees, Palestinian refugees, from what would be later Israeli territory and moving them off into various uh, refugee camps, and into diaspora. The way in which the heroic historiography of Israel portrays this, it, it's more like a voluntary flight, sometimes with more venal motivations, but a closer look at the archival records indicate that while there was no organized plan to displace these refugees, it was definitely something which was not unwelcome to the young state, for reasons that I think should be obvious. If you have a look at this map here, uh, the this is from uh, Professor Morris's book, you can see the hatched lines represent 
the territory held by Israel on May 15th, 1948, which was, you know, when they declared independence, it is smaller than the territory that was allotted to them by the 1947 partition plan. But this is where they actually existed in the land of Israel with some control at the time. They were then invaded by several armies, by Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, and by Syria. And amazingly, they were able to hold them off. And not only that, to actually expand the territory a little bit. Now, I want to show you a map here real quick to just illustrate how truly remarkable this victory was for the state of Israel very early in its history. As you can see here, Israel is surrounded in the north by Lebanon and Syria, over in the east by Jordan, and down in the south by Egypt. And there were various efforts to come invade Israel, and there was a strong stand that they had to make. And this was a war of independence. This was from the Israeli perspective, their last stand to try to become a true nation. And as you can see, they were attacked from all sides. This map covers May 15th to June 10th, 1948. It is a remarkable military achievement. As Professor Kramer put it in her last book, though, it's not exactly a David versus Goliath kind of battle was more like David versus many Davids because the Arab armies suffered from a lot of deficiencies. But if you look at the challenges that the young Israeli state faced, particularly looking at that small strip of land extending from the coast to Jerusalem, you know, this, this is a very indefensible kind of territory. And so this plan Dalit, which was especially focused on consolidating territories and roadways in particular to be able to access important Jewish settlements uh, was crucial. Beginning from the date that the Israelis declared statehood uh, to the period when the British actually evacuated and then the full-on war, there are a lot of hostilities which occasionally involved some horrific atrocities, such as that of Der Yassin, which spread fear throughout the Palestinian population that the Israelis would be attacking them. And they could point to a few examples where, in fact, that had happened. And for the Haganah, the uh, proto-army of the State of Israel, later transformed into the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, they had no reason to stop Arabs from fleeing because they saw that as the Palestinians left their homes, they were freeing up more territory to allow them to achieve their objectives of securing the roads and a more defensible set of borders. Just to remind us here, once again, what we're talking about is the Nakba. And the Nakba is, again, an Arabic word. It means catastrophe. And this refers to this time in history where there was this mass displacement of 700,000 plus Palestinians during the War of Independence between Israel and the Pan-Arab states. Now, there are disagreements between Jews and Arabs concerning the cause of the Nakba and why the Arabs were displaced and who told them to leave. Now, the popular narrative among Arabs is that they were forced out of their homes 
by the Israelis. People on the Israeli side of the conversation will usually say that the numbers of displaced Arabs are greatly inflated and that the people who left, in most cases, they left on their own, maybe because of the chaos of war. There are some reports that Arab leaders themselves told the Arabs to leave their homes, saying they would be back shortly after the war was over. I've also heard people on the Israeli side of the discussion say that these Arabs had to be forced out of their homes because there was a, they posed a security threat. After all, this is war. So there is a bit of haziness about why this displacement happened. At least it's not super clear to me. But it did happen. And to what extent that it happened or the reason it happened, again, is hotly debated. But everyone can agree that the Nakba happened and that it intensified the conflict between Arabs and Jews. Okay, let's continue. Now, what that means for the displaced Palestinians is that many of them, hundreds of thousands, were displaced into camps. And as you can see from this map, refugee camps were set up throughout the region in the Gaza Strip, in neighboring Jordan, which, of course, from 1949 until 1967 also controlled the West Bank, in Syria, and in Lebanon. In terms of the numbers, looking at it from the early 21st century, there were about 5.5 million people who are registered with the United Nations as being refugees or descendants of refugees. Those are the children, obviously, of the original 700,000-odd refugees. Um, and about 1.5 million of them are still in the camps. About 370,000 in Jordan, 200,000 in the West Bank, 100,000 in Syria, 200,000 in Lebanon, and 700,000 in Gaza. It is worthy of note that most of the descendants of those original refugees have made lives for themselves in a Palestinian diaspora, but still that massive number of one and a half million people living in refugee camps throughout the region is deeply troubling and, of course, is a constant uh, reminder of how important this problem is and how it must be solved. And how it must be solved, quote-unquote, is really the key to the whole conflict that we are seeing play out in the news. Why are Palestinian supporters demanding justice in protests all over the world? Well, here's kind of the bottom line. It's because those driven out during the Nakba beginning in the late 1940s are seen as still displaced refugees, people who lost their homes and their properties at that time. And they have now experienced, from their point of view, multi-generational trauma. And I would say they are now manifesting multi-generational resentment. The descendants of some of these refugees still live in refugee camps in Jordan, Syria, Gaza, and the West Bank. So let's just look at Wikipedia, you know, it's not always the greatest uh, resource, but it gives us a little back of the envelope calculation on understanding some of these numbers better. You can see here this little map of the refugee camps on the right. 
The definition of the of a Palestinian refugee is very interesting and important. UNRWA, which is a part of the UN, and they seem to be have a great responsibility toward these Palestinian refugees. And many of them are are registered with UNRWA, and I think that's how they arrive at these numbers. But it defines Palestinian refugees as persons whose normal place of residence was Palestine during the period of 1946 to 1948, who lost both their homes and means of livelihood in the conflict. So it goes all the way back to the War of Independence, okay? So it's not looking at where these people live now. That's not the definition of a refugee in this case of the Palestinians. It is looking at those people and their children and grandchildren who were displaced during the Nakba. Okay, so here you can scroll down and see all of the camps. They're in the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. And you can see the numbers of how many of these have registered refugees. But keep in mind, these are not necessarily all people who live in these camps. They are people who are either living in these camps or descended from people who lost their homes in the Nakba. So here's all the camps and you can see there's a whole column here of the numbers, the the population numbers here of each camp. Okay, you can see all of those numbers in descending order. And then the population statistics. Back in 1950, at the near the beginning of all of this, there were 900,000 displaced people, displaced Arabs. Today, in 2018, we've got five and a half million. But again, keep in mind, not all of these people actually live in camps. Some of them have migrated out and built homes and lives for themselves in other places. So today, there's about six million registered refugees, but 1.7 million or 28% actually live in camps. So when we're talking about these issues, it can become very confusing because you might think, well, when I hear that there's six million Palestinian refugees, they're all living in tents somewhere or in transitional housing. And, and that's not uh, the most clear picture of what's happening. But there is a fair amount of confusing terminology around this. And from what I can tell, Palestinians is the only refugee group who are categorized this way, where their descendants are still categorized as refugees and people who, who do not live in these these refugee areas can still be considered refugees. But to help illustrate this problem of the Palestinian side and, and how they feel about the Nakba, I want to play this very brief exchange from a pro-Palestinian apologist because it represents a very typical rhetoric of the bitter blood land feud that exists between these distant cousins of the Arabs and the Jews, or, and here's where the distinctions get more fuzzy, between Muslims 
and the state of Israel. So this is from the Piers Morgan Show. I've got to say, I really struggle with anyone who just cannot have the humanity to start by saying what happened on October the 7th was appalling, an outrage. Do you feel it was? I think Palestinians are tired of that being the starting point constantly, when right now there are 6,000 Palestinians who have been killed in Gaza, over 2,500 of them children, 33 mosques leveled, hospitals leveled. So we're tired of that being the, the main goal of the conversation. It's not the main goal. Part of it. It's the starting but point of this war. Yeah, but hang on. It's the starting point of this war. Outside it's not the main goal of what I want the conversation to be. The starting point was when 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed, were expelled from their homelands uh, during the Nakba, which my, grandparents, the which my grandparents mm. f uh, fled Palestine because of the Nakba, because of the massacres and the rapes that they heard. So to me, that's the starting point. That's my experience. Let's go with that for a minute. Let's start with the Nakba, because the only Nakba is the part that people forget to address. 1948, after the partition plan, the Jewish state called in the Arabs to live prosperously and peacefully in the land. But what happened the very next day, not even 24 hours later, is the alleged Nakba, where the Arab leagues declared war on the Jewish state, that we just agreed to have our two-state solution. And what did they tell their people? Leave the state. Let us get the land back. Let's ethnically cleanse the Jewish people. And once we defeat them in this war, you will come back to the land. So the only Nakba was a catastrophe that you guys, the Arab leagues, waged a war that you could not win. And that is why I'm Sorry, your grandparents had to leave their home. That's completely ahistorical. I don't represent the Arab League. I'm Palestinian, and I'm speaking on behalf of the Palestinians. But why do you... Now, once again, the reason I'm playing this clip is because this is what the, co the conflict often sounds like in real life. And these roots all go back to this very complicated system of events that happened in the late 1940s. By 1949, the armistice lines had created something which would later be known as the Green Line, the borders of Israel, even if the state surrounding it did not recognize its official existence. Israel continued to deal with infiltrations from uh, neighboring countries, from Egypt in particular, and there were conflicts like the 1956 Sinai War that were, were very relevant for many other reasons. But I want to focus on the 1967 Six-Day War because that is especially crucial from the Palestinian perspective. If you have a look at this map here, in June of 1967, Israel looked like the map on the left. And you can see it, Gaza was then part of Egypt and the West Bank was part of Jordan. Israel then fought a war primarily with Egypt, but also with Jordan and with Syria as well. And amazingly, over the course of a very brief period of time, six days, and specifically through establishing air superiority early on, Israel was able to actually expand its territory dramatically. It was rather a surprising victory for everyone involved, and Israel had to decide what it was going to do with these territories. And this is extremely important, so let me slow down a little bit. They decided to annex two parts of the region. Uh, annex meaning they took those parts and they made them permanently part of the state of Israel, never to be returned in any future peace deal. Specifically, the uh, eastern part of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem had been a divided city since 1949 and actually the holiest site of Jewish geography, the uh, Temple Mount, was located on the Jordanian side. Since Jerusalem is the historic capital of the Jewish people, 
East Jerusalem was annexed outright and made part of the state of Israel proper. This also happened in the north, in the Golan Heights, where you have a mountainous region, and whoever commands the heights either looks down onto the Galilee or looks down onto Damascus. And given that it had great strategic value and not a huge uh, local population, it was easy for the Israelis to annex that territory as well. However, the West Bank, with its large Palestinian population, posed a much greater threat because annexing the territory would involve giving all those Arabs citizenship, and that would deeply upset the demographic balance that Israel must maintain if it is to remain a Jewish state. And let us recall that Israel is striving really for two basic goals. One, to establish a Jewish state, a country that is free for Jewish immigration, that Jews can flee there if they are persecuted elsewhere. And secondly, it wants to establish a democratic state. It wants the political basis of Israel to be essentially one person, one vote. About 20% of Israel's population is not Jewish, uh, primarily Palestinian Muslims, also Palestinian Christians, also Druze and Baha'i and many other peoples. And 20% is a sizable minority, but it still retains the basic Jewish character of the state. If citizenship were extended to all of these people in the West Bank and also in Gaza, that would seriously threaten the demographic balance of Israel as a Jewish state and simply could not be countenanced. Okay, so what is he saying here? He's basically saying that granting citizenship to every Arab living in Gaza and the West Bank would put the ability to keep Israel a nation that is deeply connected to Jews and Judaism as an ethnicity, as a culture, as a religion, would be put in jeopardy. Although Israel does grant citizenship and equal rights under the law to non-Jews, which currently is about 20% of its population. But Israel's overriding goal is that they also want to keep the nation safe for Jews to live in, and that this can be a safe harbor for Jews who come under persecution. Now, from the perspective of those Arabs who live in Gaza and the West Bank, this situation has created what feels for them like a two-tiered system one where they feel disenfranchised as non-citizens from the from the Palestinian perspective the Arab Arab perspective they came under the structure of the Israeli government and so although the West Bank as it's called and Gaza were these areas where there was a higher population of Palestinians and, and Muslims, they were still under the Israeli government in terms of security protocols, policing, and some policies. And their movements, particularly in and out of Israel, have become very limited for reasons that we're going to about to go into in a few minutes here. And even where they could build homes, 
became restricted. They couldn't do it without a building permit from the Israeli government. And this is the foundation for many of the claims that Israel is an apartheid state. So if you hear that accusation in the news, I'm trying to explain from the Palestinian perspective why they make that accusation. It is because for them, they see Israel's security protocols as creating a two-tiered system that they feel disenfranchises them as non-citizens. So Israel is in a very tricky position because if they were to grant citizenship to all of these people who live in the West Bank and live in Gaza, it would throw off the, the power dynamics of keeping Jews in the majority of the population and to secure the safety of Jews and keep Israel having its Jewish culture and a democratic government. Okay, let's continue. So the West Bank and Gaza and the largely uninhabited Sinai Peninsula was simply occupied. They, these territories were administered by Israel, controlled by Israel, but the general thinking was that they would be exchanged for some kind of peace deal. Not all Israelis felt that way. Some said that peace should be exchanged for peace and the territory should remain within Israel. But by and large, the dominant opinion was that they, these territories would be given back. And in fact, this is what happened to Sinai, as we'll discuss in a minute. But here's an, a really important moment for the Palestinians. This document is Resolution 242, which was issued a few months after the conclusion of the Six-Day War. And it's really important for two main reasons. The first is something that you see in item number one, Roman number one, which refers to the basis of a peace, a just and lasting peace, as the withdrawal of Israel armed forces from territories occupied in the recent conflict, meaning in the Six-Day War. And what this implicitly said was that there would be a just and lasting peace going back to the Green Line boundaries of 1949, that if uh, Israel were to give up these territories that it conquered, then in fact a just and lasting peace could be achieved. Uh, this is actually a big plus for Israel in many ways because the surrounding Arab states did not recognize the 1949 boundaries as a permanent and lasting peace. They regarded it as a kind of larger ceasefire, an armistice for the time being. So that was a big win for Israel in one sense. Uh, and note, by the way, I've included the French, which is also the official version, but the French version has a very key, small distinction. It includes the phrase, des territoires, as opposed to simply territories, which uh, is much more demanding that all of those territories had to be returned. Whereas in the English version, it only implies that at least some of the territories, from territories, not from the territories. The other thing which is hugely important about this document is something which is not written, and that is the word Palestinian. This entire document reflects a relationship between the state of Israel, now recognized with boundaries of 1949, and its neighbor nation states. This was not something that affected the Palestinians, according to the document. It was something that affected Jordan, Egypt, and Syria in particular. And peace would be made between those players, 
not involving the Palestinians. And this, I think, is perhaps one of the most important drivers of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from the beginning up until the present day. Just a quick summary here. In other words, Resolution 242 was not a resolution that was directed to the Palestinians directly. It was directed to the surrounding nations, such as Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. In hindsight, this was probably a misstep, and it might be seen as an opportunity lost on both sides. And he's going to further explain that here as we continue. And that is that the Israelis failed to adequately understand the Palestinians, and the Palestinians failed to adequately understand the Israelis. Let me just take a very brief moment to speak about that. In terms of the Palestinian misunderstanding of the Israelis, they failed to grasp just how desperate this people was after the Holocaust. Palestinians through the 1960s, and many pro-Palestinian enthusiasts today, seem to take it for granted that Israeli Jews would be prepared to accept to live as kind of like, you know, guests within a generous, benign Islamic host society. And that's simply not valid for Jews after the Holocaust. Jews must have a refuge. They must have a home. The earth is so big, Jews demand a small portion for themselves, and they believe that it is totally within their moral right to demand it, especially in their ancestral home. This is a very important point from the Israeli perspective. Let me show you another map just to try to expand and illustrate what Dr. Abramson is saying here. From an Israeli perspective, they will tell you that they are surrounded by Arab Muslim nations, as you can see here. Israel is just a little sliver there, you can see in orange, surrounded by these Arab and Muslim nations, okay? And some of the Muslim nations are not Arab. Those in dark red are Arab Muslim countries. Those in lighter red are also Muslim countries but not necessarily Arab countries. Anyways, in light of the Holocaust and losing 6 million Jews, the Jewish people think it's a reasonable expectation to have a small sliver of land, a land that is connected to their ancestors, where they can live in safety and peace. They believe in this so firmly that they are willing to take their stand in the land and die if they have to, okay? This is, is not a small point. This is a very important point for the, for the Jewish people and why they feel that the state of Israel is so important. The Jews will also point out that they also endured a mass displacement in the wake of the war for their independence. They were forced out of many Middle Eastern countries. As you can see in this map, and again, this is kind of the episode of maps. So if you're watching the podcast or listening on the podcast, I'm doing my best to explain things, but you might be better served to just go watch the video version 
of this stream. But you can see from this map that the number of Jews that lived in various Middle Eastern countries back in 1948. And then it compares that to how many Jews live in those countries in as of 2017. And you can see in some countries it's zero. Oman is zero. Iran is 10. Okay. Syria, Lebanon, it says there's 100. Yemen, there's 50. Bahrain is 35. I mean, these are for the Jewish people, they're saying, look, we get it on the Palestinian side of the conversation about the Nakba. But we also have undergone displacement. And at one time, some Jews fled to Middle Eastern countries um, away from Europe for safe harbor. And they they were able to get along there okay. They they had to pay an extra tax and you know there was there were some problems, but they could live relatively peacefully there. But after the War of Independence, these Muslim countries drove the Jews out. And so from the Jewish perspective, they're saying, now, now wait a minute, the, the earth is large. <laughs> um, we deserve at least a small sliver of land, a land that we are attached to through our ancestors. We're willing to be surrounded by all of these Muslim countries, but we're going to take our stand that this is our right to have a small country. We fought a war for independence. Then we fought another war in the 1960s. And we're going to take our stand and we will die here. For their part, the Israelis misunderstand that the Palestinian national cause, although it awakened much later than many other nationalities, it nevertheless is very real and profound. This is a society that at the beginning of the 20th century was still quite primitive in terms of having very low levels of literacy and education and so on. And most of their national expressions were of loyalty to region and perhaps to clan, to to religion, and but they regarded themselves as part of a larger pan-Arabic uh, society. Those things are all very true. But by discounting the Palestinian drive for self-determination, which would really awaken in the second half of the 20th century, by never taking those concerns seriously, Israelis tended to miss the boat and to disrespect the Palestinians in ways that would be incredibly tragic. And this Resolution 242 is perhaps the, the pinnacle of that statement coming from the United Nations that completely ignores Palestinian considerations. Now, we would see this come to fruition in this very jovial photograph here that shows the Egyptian leader Anwar Sadat on the left, the American president Jimmy Carter in the center, and the Israeli prime minister Menachem Begin, uh, who had faced off against each other in the 1973 war launched by Egypt in particular. And But the reason why these three men are smiling here is because after that war was fought and Egypt was able to retain some pride, and after demonstrating that Egypt could inflict damage on Israel, he was able to call up Menachem Begin and effect a peace treaty. In the late 1970s, Israel, with some significant internal controversy, gave the entire Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt, but Egypt was unwilling to take back the Gaza Strip. 
with its high concentration of restive Palestinians, many of whom showed an affinity for the Muslim Brotherhood, an organization which later would spawn Hamas, and Egypt felt that they were simply too destabilizing an element to bring into their polity. I find this comment so interesting. Dr. Abramson is tactfully trying to say through the use of this word restive, which is not a word I had ever heard before, and so I had to go look it up. But she, he characterizes the residents of Gaza as being restive. And what that means is that they are unable to be controlled. They're unable, they're unwilling to come under authority. And the Egyptians were saying, look, you know, thank you, Israel. We'll take back the Sinai Peninsula, but you can keep Gaza. We don't want that. And why is that? It's because it already had, even in the 1970s, a connection to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a point that was made by my friend Kelly Mitchell in our conversation together a few weeks ago. There were the seeds or the roots of what has become Hamas and other terrorist groups coming from Gaza. And the Egyptians saw this all the way back in in the 70s, and they said, we're not having it. We're not bringing Gaza under our control, and they left it for Israel. But an organization which later would spawn Hamas, and Egypt felt that they were simply too destabilizing an element to bring into their polity. Anwar Sadat's vision of peace in the Middle East came to fruition, and although the relationship between Israel and Egypt has not been decidedly warm, it has nevertheless maintained peaceful relations since the 1980s. But Anwar Sadat himself would pay for this with his life, as some of his own bodyguard, incensed with the idea that he would make peace, turned on him and shot him dead. The turning point for the Palestinian movement was undoubtedly the establishment of the Palestine Liberation Organization led by Yasser Arafat. This was to be the focal point of Palestinian national efforts, and although they had to elbow their way to the table, not only at the United Nations and elsewhere, but even among other Arab allies, nevertheless, they took the lead in articulating what they wanted for themselves, rather than allowing the Arab states in the region to dictate what would be the fate of the Palestinians. They wrote a national charter in 1964 that was thoroughly unrealistic, laying out essentially a one-state Palestinian vision of the land of Israel, where only those Jews and their descendants who had lived in the territory before the Balfour Declaration in 1917 would have any rights. And furthermore, that armed struggle was the only way to liberate Palestine. This notion of a one-state solution combined with violence to achieve that end, was thoroughly unacceptable to the Israelis. So Yasser Arafat, again, plays a very pivotal role in all of this. And I mentioned briefly in part one, he was the one who came up with the idea of using the term Palestinian and that this would begin to establish more of an ethnic or national identity. And Arafat's one-state proposal one where the land would be ruled by Palestinians was rejected by Israel. The The idea that Israel would allegedly, quote unquote, return the land to the Palestinians 
and I'm using air quotes here when I say return the land to Palestinians, because, again, from the Israeli perspective and arguably from the UN perspective at that time, there was no land to return to the Palestinians. Let me explain what I mean by that. And again, a map will be helpful. This is a map of four panels, and you may have seen this on the internet or on social media memes, and it appears regularly, comes from pro-Palestinian books and articles, websites, and it's usually shown as a sequence of four maps that appears to lend historic weight to an inescapable conclusion that the Palestinians want you to arrive at, and that is one that Israel is guilty of systemic land theft, okay? It shows allegedly how, from the Palestinian perspective, the territory is continually shrinking and Jews are continually stealing more land. Again, this is the Palestinian narrative. Now, the first map on the left is what I really want to focus on because it connects to this discussion about Yasser Arafat and the one-state solution that he proposed. It shows on this map that more than 90% of the land belonged, quote-unquote, to the Palestinians in 1946. Well, there's a major problem with this assertion, this claim, and that is that there was never a nation called Palestine, which is something I covered in part one. Palestine was a territory. It was um, an area that existed under the rule of several sequential empires, and it was inhabited by Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Arabs, and Palestinian Christians. But it was never a sovereign nation, okay? Now, it is true that a very small percentage of land in Palestine was privately owned at that time, but but the great majority of the land was simply government land. Um, and it is also true that Jews owned a small percentage of that land, but Arabs only owned slightly more. And yet the impression that this map is seeking to convey is that all of the land of Palestine pretty much was quote unquote owned by the Palestinians. So here's where Arafat's proposal in the 1960s of the one state solution bumps up against reality is he wanted the land quote unquote returned to the Palestinians. The problem was there was no country of Palestine to return it to. Individual Palestinians did not own all of that land prior to 1947. Again, most of it was government land. And from the Arab or the, the Palestinian Yasser Arafat perspective, all of that land, though, belongs to them. And the Jews have no claim there. And this is why you will hear on the news that Israel is seen as occupiers, why people from the Palestinian perspective are constantly calling the Israel, the state of Israel, sometimes they say it's about the Jews, that they are occupiers of the land because their assumption is that all of that land, as is shown on the map here on the left, belong to Palestinians. The question that, but that is the very question that must be determined. Um, and 
as we've mentioned before, there's several anachronistic problems here that the technical definition that we use now for Palestinians didn't even exist in 1917. But from the Jewish perspective, Arafat's proposal was just preposterous. They had survived the Holocaust. Jews had lived in the land for thousands of years, at least, you know, there had been continuous um, living there by a small minority throughout, you know, the history of Israel. They had fought a war of independence to, to uh, defend the land. They fought another war in the 1960s. And they were like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're, we're not vacating the land. We're not turning it over to Yasser Arafat. The PLO then sought to gain attention for its cause through some very dramatic terrorist activities throughout Europe and the Middle East, which included things like airplane hijackings in particular, the massacre of the Israeli Olympic athletes at Munich, and many other elements. It is important to note that in this brief video, I'm speaking about the PLO generally, but we should understand that it is essentially an umbrella organization and there are many different factions that come together under this umbrella. And a more nuanced look at the various groups would say a lot more about the internal debate over the value of these kinds of activities. But we can say in general that the PLO, under Arafat's leadership at this time, failed to grasp some very important emerging realities about the future of their national movement. First of all, they completely misunderstood the importance of public opinion in Europe and especially in America, where the Israelis had far greater experience with the media environment, with the culture, they had developed many connections and so on, and uh, the PLO was not going to win their propaganda war through terrorism. In fact, it was just burying them further and sidelining the movement as being one associated with criminality and violence. Secondly, the PLO failed to realize that their conduct and even their mere presence in states bordering Israel uh, made them increasingly unwelcome. Jordan, for example, which was one of the friendliest states to the Palestinians, granting them citizenship, for example, and in fact the majority of the Jordanian population is of Palestinian extraction, they found that they had to expel Arafat and the PLO after an uprising in September 1970 that was aimed at overthrowing the monarchy there. Same sort of thing happened in Lebanon and elsewhere, and by the time you get to the 1980s, the PLO is basically out of the region. It has no direct border contact with the state of Israel. And it's basically Arafat and others are hiding out in Tunis in North Africa. Furthermore, Arafat made a few key missteps at this point. He backed, for example, Iraq against Kuwait when Iraq invaded, leading to a much larger uh, invasion of Iraq in 1991. And much of the PLO was bankrolled by the Soviet Union, which saw it as a useful proxy in its battle against the United States in the Cold War. And as the Soviet Union began to go through its slow train wreck of self-destruction, uh, it became clear that the PLO was going to lose more and more power. Ultimately, by the time you get to the early 1990s, the PLO has figured this out. They amended their charter significantly in favor of the kind of things that Israel would want to see, including the acceptance of Resolution 242, with at least the 1949 boundaries for Israel, 
And secondly, abandoning the notion that armed struggle is the only way to liberate Palestine. And this is when we can start talking seriously about a two-state solution. That is the idea of Israel as a Jewish state and Palestine as an eventual Palestinian state in the same region in one form or another. Now, again, don't forget the seeds of the two-state idea goes all the way back to the 19-teens and 20s. The idea of the two groups, the Arabs and the Israelis living in the land, each with their own areas and governance. But keep in mind that the Arabs had rejected those proposals multiple times, wanting the entire region or territory of Palestine to be purely under Arab governance or in functionally and practically speaking to become a Muslim country. Now, at this point in the conversation, it seems like Yasser Arafat is starting to come around to the way of thinking. You know, it's taken a few decades, but it seems like, you know, there's more of an openness to accepting the reality that Israel is going to be a state and we're not going to bomb our way or take hostages anymore. We're not going to bomb our way to a solution. Rather, we're going to come around to the two-state idea. And they rewrote their charter and amended all of that. So unfortunately, as we're going to see how things unfold um, in part three of this conversation, we'll really never know whether the two-state idea can actually work. Now, maybe it could have worked 50 years ago uh, if Arafat hadn't come up with the one-state solution idea and they tried to bomb their way into independence. Um, but I think that things have developed in such a way that I'm not even sure that a two-state solution is ever going to work. But that's an opinion because now we're living in the reality that these cousins seem unable to live side by side, to live in a land together as separate nation states. Um, now, that's not to say that the Arabs, individual Arabs, don't live peacefully side by side with individual Jews. That happens. There are people who live in the West Bank and come and work in Jerusalem, and they have peaceful relations on an individual level. There's individuals who are Arabs and they work for or live side by side with Jews who live in the West Bank, they are able to have a peaceful coexistence together. What I'm talking about is the nation states, the big macro level. I am a skeptic at this point, unless there is some massive cultural change on the part of the Palestinians, I don't see how the two-state solution ever works. But again, that's an opinion. Okay, we're going to pick up the story now. We are in the late 1980s. It is unlikely, however, that even this two-state model would have received any traction were it not for the first intifada that it broke out in December of 1987. The term intifada in Arabic refers to a kind of like an uprising and general revolt that is kind of like a spontaneous grassroots movement, and that was a fair description of what began to happen. Arafat, although the titular head of the PLO, was severely weakened off in his hideout in Tunis, 
Many of his allies had been co-opted by their states or assassinated by Israel, and he simply had lost a lot of power, although he still had a symbolic kind of role to play as the figurehead of the Palestinian movement. What happened in December 1987 is that the Palestinians themselves in Gaza and the West Bank began to rise up spontaneously on their own, and the character of their uprising was rather different than anything they had done before. The first intifada was now characterized by widespread terrorism in the sense of things that would later become much more associated with the second intifada, blowing up of buses and pizza shops and things like that. It was rather a kind of a symbolic attack on the IDF, as we see in this iconic photograph of a young Palestinian boy throwing a rock at this massive Israeli tank. The Palestinians, through a very deft use of the large number of foreign journalists who were frequently on the ground in Israel were able to take their message to the world in a very different way and actually inverted the David versus Goliath model that had frequently applied to the Israelis in the earlier heroic historiography. Now the Palestinians adopted that mantle of the young David and Israel as the oppressor. The Palestinians in this first intifada were able to really draw attention to the multiple humiliations that were associated with living in a second-class status in the West Bank and in Gaza, such as moving through slow checkpoints, which were designed by the Israelis to allow the large number of West Bank and Gaza residents who worked in the state of Israel to proceed into Israel proper and to their jobs and to not allow people who are going to be engaged in terrorism in Israel. So for the Israelis, these security checkpoints were precisely what they sound like, but for Palestinians, they were a daily humiliation. Now, earlier we mentioned briefly about some of the reasons why the pro-Palestinian side of the conversation accuses Israel of being an apartheid state. Now we have arrived at another reason for that accusation, and that is these checkpoints that Dr. Abramson is mentioning. These were established by Israel in order to control their borders. These checkpoints, however, are a source of deep concern for residents of the West Bank and Gaza. For example, if you work in Jerusalem, but you, maybe you live in Bethlehem, then every day you must go through checkpoints just in order to get to your job. This kind of control of movements for a particular group of people, one that applies different standards to Israeli citizens. This is seen as an example of a two-tiered system. And these checkpoints are cited by pro-Palestinian activists as being an injustice and a manifestation of apartheid. From an Israeli perspective, however, establishing these checkpoints has been very effective in reducing bombings that made their country more insecure. And now their country is safer because of these checkpoints. So here is where we get into a debate over two sides seeing something from two different perspectives. I'm sure that Israeli citizens are very grateful for this extra added measure of security. Now we're going to get into what is possibly one of the most contentious issues today, and that is the Jewish settlements in the West Bank. And there were a significant number of Israelis who felt that 
they should not be giving territory back to any other Arab population. And either for economic or ideological reasons, they are moving into these territories that were beyond the green line. And a significant number of Israelis, Jewish Israelis, were now living in West Bank lands, a smaller number in Gaza. And many Palestinians saw these people as the leading edge of an Israeli land grab there was frequent conflict and violence that occurred in the West Bank as a result of the meeting of these two populations. Oh, boy. Okay, Dr. Abramson very quickly gives a summary of a huge issue and controversy here. And we're going to see this play out in a bigger way in when we get to part three. But for now, let me just say that there are no small number of Jews who have moved into the West Bank and established settlements. And think of a settlement as what starts out as sort of a small town or or village, at least in the beginning. Now they can grow they can grow bigger than that. But from what I understand, if you are an Israeli citizen, you have to get special permission from the Israeli government in order to establish a home in the West Bank. This land is seen as government land. It is land that then becomes the property of that family. Now, keep in mind that from a Palestinian perspective, all of the land already belongs to them. Go back to that map from, you know, the the 1920s, they see all of the land as belonging to the Palestinians. And from their perspective, the entire Israeli government is just an illegal occupier was stolen their land. But again, this is the very disputed point that has to be settled. It is the very point under debate because the territory of Palestine was under many different sequential kingdoms and most of the land wasn't even privately owned back in the teens and 20s. Now, there could be some instances here that I want to acknowledge where um, individual Jews or Israeli citizens stole land from individual Arab families. I think that's possible. Human nature is sinful. People do bad things to each other. But in terms of what's been happening in recent decades, from my best understanding, is that all of these settlements must be granted through permission of the Israeli government. But these efforts to settle Jews in the West Bank area are seen by Palestinians as land theft, pure and simple. And it has deepened the ethnic blood feud between these cousins over this land. Okay. All right. We're going to skip ahead a little bit in the story and get to the end. When you put all of these things together, the beginning of a shift in the international narrative the weakness of the PLO as the official leader of the Palestinian movement and the collapse of its support from the loss of the Soviet Union led Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of Israel, to determine that he had to make peace with Yasser Arafat. And his reasoning was, if he did not make peace with the PLO, he would ultimately have to make peace with a thousand other Palestinian entities because the PLO could not itself handle the fractious nature of its population. It had already lost control of much of the narrative which was being taken over 
by the Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. And so, much like Anwar Sadat reached out to Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Rabin reached out to Yasser Arafat. And with the assistance of the United States under Bill Clinton, shown here in this famous photograph, they were able to establish another peace treaty, the Oslo Accords, which was really the, the culmination of this idea of a two-state solution. I'm going to spend a lot more time talking about what that solution was and what its challenges were and are in the next video. But at this point, we have to mention that in a cruel irony of history, just as Anwar Sadat was assassinated by Muslim extremists who disagreed with his view of peace, so too was Yitzhak Rabin assassinated by a Jewish extremist who was incensed with the idea of making peace with a former terrorist. Here you see a very sad photograph, which was a copy of a Hebrew poem, The Song for Peace, which was stained with Yitzhak Rabin's own blood in the context of his assassination. I want to close out part two of this survey of the history of the nation of Israel with one final thought. You know, what we see in the land blood war between Israel and the Palestinians, and in many cases, this is interconnected with an ethnic and religious blood war between Jews and Arabs or Jews and Muslims. This is a microcosm of a problem that is endemic to sinful humanity. Ethnic, tribal, national, and religious blood wars are a consequence of Adam's sin. And this is not a problem that is exclusive to the West, American colonialism, or whiteness. It is a problem of the human condition, tracing back to biblical times. In fact, God provides certain commandments in his law against blood feuds as a, as a measure to try to put a stop to these things. He tells Israel to establish cities of refuge where if somebody is killed, they can um, the, the murderer, the killer can run to the city of refuge in order to get a fair trial. And that the, the people, family members are not allowed to engage in blood feuds against another tribe or another family. God knew that this is a problem the whole time. What we're experiencing is maybe a larger scale of that in Israel, but it is a problem tracing back to biblical times. Injustice is part of living in a fallen world. And I don't mean to downplay in any way the existence of injustice or to suggest that Christians and other like-minded people of goodwill and um, Judeo-Christian moral principles shouldn't work for a, a more just society. But all of these efforts must be done while simultaneously standing in the reality that humans are deeply sinful. And when human sin goes on without restraint, it, it wants to dominate others. I'm reminded of the description in Genesis chapter 3 of the man and the woman. And it says that the woman's desire would be for the man and the man would rule over her. Just as the man would want to rule over the woman, I think there is something within our sin nature that wants to rule over others, period. This is endemic to the human condition. Um, so when I think about the question, how could some members of the Israeli army treat Arabs so terribly within 
when the Holocaust was literally just three years in their rearview mirror? Well, the 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 biggest answer to that, the most general and accurate answer is that of sin. When I think about the question of how could Palestinian people hand out sweets when Jews are killed by Hamas, the answer to that is sin. Why is there so much dehumanization and, and bitterness by people on both sides? Well, sin. Sin is an unavoidable contributor to the conflict. And this is something that no one in the mainstream media is discussing. And, and that's why I, your friendly neighborhood theologian, is here. But there is a very real sense in which these historical grievances are being brought into the cultural contemporary moment. Emotions are elevated. Bitterness becomes multiplied. And I want to play, as we close out here, a short clip from a Jewish rabbi, because this is what the struggle often sounds like from the Jewish perspective. I think he sums up the thinking of, of many reasonable Jews and, and reasonable people in general. Um, who are on both sides of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I have friends that are not Jewish, that are Muslim, and that are Christian. We'll talk about Muslim. I've asked them. Time and again, I said, we have a great-grandfather, his name was Abraham. When they were infidels, he actually prayed for them. The wicked city of Sodom, Abraham prayed for them. So why don't we learn from Abraham, that even when we have religious passions, why do we feel the need to have to hurt another, especially if you think about it as it's your cousin? And of course, I received the response, well, we're not the perpetrators. The Jews are. We've been living there for many years, Muslims, Arabs, and then the Jews decided to return. He used the word return, actually, so I said return. So he says, yeah, but that's how it works in this world. Once you left, you left. So I, so, so I said, so what is this about a land grab? Whoever is there last? And second of all, the Jews never really left. There were always Jews there. And we continued to pray to it, and we always saw it as our homeland. We were banished from there. Now, he's a decent person. I, don't, I wouldn't accuse him or suggest that he would do something violent. But there is definitely a philosophy. So I say, say to myself at times, can we sit down and actually have a conversation? Or will we get so, so entangled in old history, bad blood, and you did this and I did that, and fundamentals can never be reached? So call me naive again. But I would suggest not just sitting down at the negotiation table. Let's go back to the theological roots. Do we indeed share a destiny because we had a great-grandfather called Abraham? Did he stand for something? Even if we may have different interpretations or different approaches, is it impossible to imagine coexistence? And I'll, I'll speak, even though I'm Jewish and clearly biased, but let's for a moment, I'll step back. I'll even say, that Jews made mistakes, Arabs, Muslims made mistakes. The, the general claim is that the Jews always fought, Israelis always fought a defensive war. In 1948, the Jews did not attack. 
They would give us some slivers of land, but that was already too much. And every subsequent war was defensive. But let's even make the argument that the Jews made mistakes and they behaved in ways that some, not all, but some. But first of all, the other side has also made mistakes. So let's all acknowledge that no one here is perfect. So what would it take? Or do we resign ourselves to what most write today, reading articles, that this is a perpetual battle that will never end? There'll be lulls. There'll be years that there may be quiet. But it's a, it's a powder keg. It's a constant combustion chamber. And all you need is a spark, and that explodes again. It's not like everything was peaceful. It's a state of war all the time. So the thing is, people aren't fighting the war all the time. That is the prevalent opinion today. I think this rabbi is asking a very provocative question. What can be done to resolve this conflict? Or is it never ending? I know it's a little bit of a cliffhanger, but that's where I'm going to put a bookmark for us right now. So stay tuned for the next installment in this series. I'll drop it just a few more days from now. I thought this series was going to be two parts. I think it's going to be three parts. I'll do my best to drop part three um, about three or four days from now. But in the meantime, I really hope that you are finding this series helpful. Please send me your feedback um, and feel free to send me your corrections or other receipts. You can email them to me. And um, I look forward to that. I've really done my best to be as fair as possible and to try to give you perspectives on both sides. I do feel like it's a little bit of a, a losing battle because emotions are so strong on each side. But I do hope you're finding this informational and helpful and something that you can share with others. And with that, I will say good day and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.